Chapter Seventeen of East by West by Henry W. Lucy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. Chapter Seventeen: The Tombs of the Shoguns. The famous shrines of Nikko lie outside the town at the foot of the hills on the other side of the bustling river Daiyagawa. The town itself was not born yesterday. But the temples and tombs count their years by centuries. There is record of a Buddhist temple here in the middle of the eighth century. The importance of Nikko dates from the seventeenth, when Ieyasu, the founder of the mighty race of tycoons, who for two hundred and fifty years held imperial sway in Japan, was buried here. The first tycoon, or shogun, as he was earlier called, was deified, and religion was called in to aid courtiership in making Nikko a holy place. The vassals of the reigning shogun vied with each other in the magnificence of the presents with which they endowed the tomb of the founder of the race. A prince of the imperial blood became abbot of Nikko, and through the year solemn processions were made to the tomb. In 1868, when the revolution broke the power of the shoguns, there was a prince abbot of the Mikado's family at the head of the monastery. The shogun party played their last card when they seized him, carried him off to the north, and proclaimed him Mikado. Victory still clung to the banners of the reigning Mikado. The young pretender surrendered, the power of the tycoon was irretrievably broken, and with his fall much of the glory of Nikko has departed. There are two bridges across the river leading to the temples and the tombs. One is painted a bright red of the glaring colour in which the temples flame forth. It was built in the year 1638, and it is boasted that since then the cost of repairs has been merely nominal. This is the less marvel, since the bridge is very rarely used, being opened only once or twice a year for pilgrim processions, and for the rest being close-barred. A little lower down the stream is the more ordinary-looking and much more useful structure, over which traffic passes without restriction. Crossing this, turning to the left, and walking up the bank lined on either side with cedars, we come upon a temple, the name of which being translated is the Hall of the Three Buddhas. These three Buddhas are the thousand-handed Kwan Non, the horse-headed Kwan Non, and Omido Nyo Rai. The title of the thousand-handed Kwan Non is rather boldly assigned, since the great gilt doll that bears the name has only forty arms, quite enough, it is true, but it is well to be exact, and a good deal happens between forty and a thousand. On the matting before these images copper coins were sprinkled, the gifts of the faithful. They were minute in value, being almost exclusively rin, ten of which go to make a halfpenny. Some had placed their offerings in paper, a mark both of deeper respect and greater affluence, as seldom less than five rin were placed in the packets, 
and occasionally the contents ran as high as ten. The money-box forms a prominent feature in all the temples. There is none here approaching the proportions of the vast gridiron into which Rin are reigned at Asaksa on the fate day of the God of Happiness, but each shrine has its money-box outside, while single gifts in coin may, without incurring reproach, be strewed on matting before the god whom it is desired to propitiate. In truth, the hat goes round with great persistence in the temples of Japan, whether Buddhist or Shinto. On approaching nearly every one of these sacred halls, wherever situated, the visitor will note a hoarding, sometimes two or three, erected upon upright wooden posts, and covered with writing, just like the advertisements in railway stations, or on hoarding before unfinished buildings. These boards are truly advertisements, but have about them nothing relating to the modern bill-poster. Each strip of wood contains a record of the name of a donor to the building or sustentation fund in connection with the temple together with the amount presented. I was not able to learn where this clever device was first essayed, but it has proved highly successful, and is now common in all the temples. Any man at the expenditure of a few yen may have his name thus set up on high in holy places. Before the Hall of the Three Buddhas is a curious sundial, consisting of an upright post, from the shadow cast on the ground, the time is ascertained, and the great bell struck. This most musical instrument stands on a mound a little to the right of the temple. As the hours come round, a man mounts up to the bell, and with the whole weight of his body pulls back a wooden ram, slung at right angles with the bell. This being released falls back and strikes the bronze casting, and through the valleys, up the hills, and across the little town of Nikko, there floats a note of exquisite melody. At the back of the temple is a black pillar, crowned with a series of six gilded cups in the form of lotus flowers. This grim copper column is erected to celebrate the memorable feat of an early bishop of the Buddhist church, who in honour of the first shogun read at a single stretch the ten thousand books of Buddha. This feat occupied him seven days, during which neither meat nor drink passed his lips, only the names of Buddha. By the side of this well-authenticated feat, Mr. Bigger's famous effort, when in the House of Commons he, through four hours, read blue books to the speaker and the clerks at the table, becomes of small account. Sigen Daishi was the name of this hero, in whose too early birth Mr. Parnell lost the opportunity of securing a notable follower. Behind this temple is a smaller one, on the pillars of which are pasted numerous slips of paper, containing the names and addresses of pilgrims who have wended their way hither from all parts of the empire. The way to the tomb of the first shogun leads up a broad stone stairway, with ancient cryptomeria towering on either side. 
These steps are called the steps of a thousand measures, because there are ten of them, and on each a hundred men may stand. At the top is the granite torii, or archway, presented to the temple by one of the princes who helped to establish the power of the first shogun. The height of the arch is a little over twenty-seven feet, and the diameter of the columns is three feet six inches. The stone which forms the gateway at the top is composed of a single block of granite. How it was brought here from the distant quarries where it was delved is an unexplained marvel. Our local guide told us that when the torii was being erected, the workmen stood upon piles of bags of rice, which finally reached within three feet of the summit. When the work was finished, the bags were cut open, and the poor people of Nikko spent a pleasant time. Passing under the torii into the courtyard, we come upon a lofty pagoda of blazing red, and a quieter but more interesting memorial in the shape of an old tree, carefully guarded with a grey stone paling. This, we learned, was the identical tree which, when it was not too large to go into a pot, the first shogun carried about with him when he went on journeys. Coming out of one of the temples, we passed a small chapel, in which passively sat a figure dressed in white robes. I took it to be a priest, but the guide said it was a woman, and if I put some money in the ever-open box, she would dance. We deposited coin, a few halfpence, and the figure promptly rising at the chink of money went through a melancholy kind of dance, accompanied by the shaking of bells which she held in her hand. It was over in a few seconds, the conclusion being announced by the priestess bowing till she touched the ground with her forehead, and then resuming her passive attitude, waiting till someone else came by with a few coppers to spare. It is behind these temples, reached through a beautiful approach of greystone steps with moss-grown walls, the sunlight peeping through the trees beyond, that the tombs of the great shoguns lie. Here, remote from human life, sleeps the great soldier Iyeyasu, and his greater grandson Iyemitsu, the one the founder, the other the consolidator of the mighty line of shoguns. Their moss-grown graveyards are girt about with solemn cedars, and the only sound that breaks the stillness of the place is the sighing of the wind through the branches. The tombs are impressive by reason of their simplicity, but I confess that the red temples with their gilt and gingerbread gods had nothing to say to me. There is some wonderful carving, but it is whitewashed and painted till the patient art of the carver is piteously obscured. Supposing the outside of Westminster Abbey were painted a bright red, and some of its choicest carvings in the interior were picked out with blue and vermilion, what a glory would be departed from the nation! Yet it is thus that at Nikko the Japanese have dealt with what they are disposed to regard as their best shrines. 
During the heyday of the power of the shoguns, the paint was laid on afresh once in twenty years. Now that the power is broken, and it is not the policy of the present government to keep its memory green, there is hope of the shrines of Nikko improving as the gaudy colours fade and the paint is rubbed off the carvings. In the afternoon we walked to the falls of Kiripuri, taking a wide sweep round the base of Toyama. It is in turning from the temples in Nikko and looking for a moment on the works of nature spread around, that one feels most angrily impressed with the vulgarity of the painted structures. Just now nature is putting on her richest colours, some brighter than any which variegate the temples. The maple and mountain ash flame blood-red through the woodland, and the birch is running through all the tints of yellow. The sky is the brightest blue, the river rushing down to the sea is a foaming white. Yet all these colours blend in exquisite harmony and compose a scene to which one is glad to turn from the pinchbeck grandeur of the pagan shrines. The walk to Kirifuri is not far, even for a lady, and the kago, or basket-chair, which we took with us, was scarcely used. The pathway turns and winds through scenes of ever-varying beauty, till suddenly we come upon the waterfall gleam of white foam falling through a bank of autumn foliage. Regarded as a waterfall it is not much, but its setting makes it exquisite. The walk to Chinzenji is a somewhat different affair, it being a good sixteen miles there and back, with some stiff climbing before the mountain lake is reached. The weather looked very doubtful, but we determined to start, doubt being presently solved by the commencement of a downpour of rain which practically lasted through the day. We had a cargo and four men, an indispensable escort for a lady on this trip. On the outskirts of a little village near Nikko we had the good fortune to purchase two waterproofs, made of oiled paper, a beautiful yellow in hue. They were a little lacking in fit, but not much can be expected for half a crown, the price of the two. They proved invaluable during the journey, resisting the persistent rain, and adding but two or three ounces to the weight of the walking costume. The way to the lake leads by the winding path which the river has won for itself on its way from the lake through the mountains. Many times we crossed the river by rustic bridges, pausing to look down at the steel-blue water gliding over gigantic stones and dashing itself in foam at their feet. Halfway up is a farmhouse. On the lintel of the dwelling were pasted three charms, one for keeping away general sickness, the second specially concerned with fever, and the third warranted to bring general happiness to the proprietor. The charm against fever represented a devil in a highly dislocated state, this peculiarity being due not to intention so to represent him, 
but to the fact that the picture is produced by drawing a brush dipped in black paint over a stamped metal pattern very stupid ito said looking at this with the clear eyes of a believer in the shinto faith only very old women's and men believe in that observations subsequently made over a wide extent of the interior convinced me that in such case old women's and men must form the largest proportion of the agricultural population of japan these charms were the rule rather than the exception chinzenji is one of the most famous show places in japan attracting natives as well as foreigners it was curious to note that the japan ari has the same passion as his brother from london for carving his imperishable name on memorial trees and stones only to the uninformed eye ari's name traced in japanese characters has a respectable even an imposing appearance the last hours climbing up to the level of the lake tests the strength of wind and limb but the four kaga men bearing their burden lightly stepped it murmuring a monotonous chant which though not musical helped them to keep step and in other more occult ways seemed to do them good there is a splendid view of the lake from the tea-house and a really big waterfall on the way back we saw little but the rain one gleam of sunshine fortuitously opening at a turn in the steep descent showing what it might be in other circumstances of weather as it was it was well worth doing we saw it in the green leaf and cheerfully resolved to imagine what it would be in the dry after dinner we had the accustomed visit from the curio men made the more exigent on their part by the knowledge that this was our last night in nikko and if we did not now buy a few carved ivories a sword or two an armful of lacquer boxes and above all that exquisite little cabinet inlaid lacquered and ivory mounted really not dear at twenty pounds they would have no other chance the curio men are one of the institutions of foreign travel in japan they live in the places principally resorted to by europeans and take note of every fresh arrival on the afternoon of the mikado's birthday when we lunched at the british embassy at tokyo the drawing-room was crowded with curio men who had heard there were guests and scented business from afar they entered the house uninvited but not unwelcome for there are worse ways of spending an hour in the afternoon than in examining the varied stores of a japanese peddler they fully recognize the justice of the understanding that since no one asked them to come there is no compulsion of buying and they also know by experience that in the course of the season they get through a deal of trade at Nikko, the curio men hunt in triplets the panel of sitting-room or bedroom noiselessly draws back a figure in japanese costume glides in bowing low and making that curious noise of sucking in the breath which with the japanese is meant to be at once self-depreciatory 
and exultatory of the presence in which he stands. The first figure having deposited a bundle on the floor, a second glides in, and after due interval a third. A timid stranger, unaware of the custom, and recalling earlier habits of the Japanese in presence of the foreigner, might well suppose his last hour had come, and that these softly treading, darkly clad, mysterious personages with bundles were his executioners. It is a matter of honour among curio men, and in accordance with the polite habits of the people, that one man shall not interfere with another's prospects by unduly thrusting his wares under notice. While ostensibly observing this rule, one of the three curio men of Nikko, a tall, crafty-looking man, who always secured the central place of the group, had a notable way of pushing his goods. While you were looking at something submitted by number one or number two, a brown hand, holding a piece of carved ivory or a lacquered box, would slowly move across the table, placing the article under the eyes of the purchaser. A violent sucking in of breath followed, and then a low voice solemnly intoning, very old, very cheap, number one. If you asked the price, the prefatory form of answer was always the same. Drawing himself up to full height, and holding up both hands, with fingers outstretched to assist in the enumeration, he began slowly and solemnly to intone, One price, very old, number one, very cheap, fingers beginning to work like a semaphore. Twenty-four yen, prolonged gust of indrawn breath, shifty sen. Shifty was as near as he could get to the pronunciation of fifty, having just sucked in half the cubic measurement of air in the room. The one price was meant to indicate that, whereas other curio men, knowing the habit of foreigners promptly to offer half the price first named, stuck it on with deliberate intention to take it off if pressed. This paragon of perfection, this inexorably just dealer, had merely added a small commission on the amount of his original purchase, and was not to be beaten down. End of chapter 17